Okay, so uh, we are in Judges chapter two, verses uh, uh, well two through Judges two through seven. Next week we will look at Judges thirteen through sixteen and the book of Ruth. So Judges thirteen through sixteen is Samson, and because Samson is strong and brash and reckless and boorish. Uh, I will be, uh, and nothing more than an object of God's grace, uh, I will be teaching that. And then because Ruth is lovely and a vessel of holiness and righteousness, um, Sarah Rich will be teaching uh, that portion uh, about Ruth. So uh, please come and give her uh, all of your attention and your feedback. She would love to hear that. All right, so Judges 2 through 7, where are we in the story? Uh, where are we in the story? The people of Israel have entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. We looked at that last week, and they have begun the conquest of Canaan. Uh, this is the fulfillment of what had been promised uh, to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Uh, we have seen repeatedly uh, that the people have some real problems holding up their end of the bargain. Real problems holding up their end of the bargain along the way. We saw the golden calf. We spent time with that. Uh, we saw the grumbling in the wilderness. We saw that um, uh, even last week as Jericho fell uh, and the faithfulness of God, he was the one who won the, the battle. A few of the people took some of the things from Jericho that they should have taken. They took them for themselves. Uh, and God does hold the people accountable, but he is always faithful to his end of the bargain. It doesn't, again, doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. Um, he does hold them accountable, but he is always faithful. The refrain over and over again throughout Scripture is God is uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Right? And that is the nature and character of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Same God. Uh, and of course, the, we say, well, we, he seems angry. You know, we're always judging this and judging that. Well, all the judgment that. God would pour out because of His holiness, not because He is boorish, but because He is holy and is opposed to anything that is unholy. All of that judgment has been poured out on Christ so that we may have that relationship. So, um, God is both judging and loving. He is not one or the other. Um, what? Let's see, where am I there? Do you know how when you move into a new house... Man, it is a lot of work. And you're just going at it, going at it, going at it. But then you get about 95% done, and the house is livable. And you can put the stuff up in the attic or in the garage or in the closets. And, you know, 10 years later, you'll find boxes that you never unpack. I mean, not you, but your next-door neighbor. It's just, it's just like, like this. And definitely not your rector. Um, but the... Um, just kidding. Um, but, you know, those last boxes never get unpacked. Um, the guest room doesn't get painted because it's fine. It's just, they're just guests. They're leaving anyway, right? So it's kind of like that in the land of Canaan. They get in and they get it livable. But not everybody's out. And, you know, we've been at war a long time. And these Jebusites and, and Canaanites and Moabites and Mosquito Bites, they're the ones that they are... Um, they, you know, they were here first, and we're just going to cut a deal. I mean, we're just tired, right? 
They don't finish the conquest. They start cutting deals. And then they start intermarrying. Which again, please don't hear this as an indictment of interracial relationships. Not, that is not what that, that is. But God said for these people to remain pure. And, um, and they start intermarrying. And then, of course, if you imagine, they have to go to Thanksgiving dinner at the in-laws' house, so they start worshiping the in-laws' gods. And um, the Baals, B-A-A-L-S, the Baals. And they start putting up um, Asherah poles, and, um, which is an object of, of worship. So what happens is that they abandon God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They abandon God. So I want to um, begin just by reading in Judges chapter 2. Verses 7 through 15. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash, Here's the emphasis. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So it's, it's kind of a bleak deal, but the whole reason was because there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord. These were, the, these were once children sitting at their breakfast table. These were the kids that should have been with them in synagogue or wherever it was, worshiping the Lord, hearing the stories of the Lord. In fact, we know for sure that the, the stories of God's faithfulness were, in fact, woven into the fabric of who they were as a people. And yet, what was the reason that the next generation didn't know the Lord? It was that they didn't impress upon their children the knowledge that they loved so much. That they had been saved with. It did not make it a requisite. And of course, um, you know, people will say you can't legislate morality. They followed the Lord all the days of Joshua. But once Joshua died, they abandoned the Lord. You can't legislate faith either. We see this a lot throughout the history. We'll see this many more times. You have a faithful king. The king dies. People go astray. 
They, they, because they, they're following the sort of the, the rules. You're, the rules are you can't worship the Baals. Then the, the rules fall away. Somebody rises up, doesn't make such a big deal about that, and they, they get back to worshiping the Baals. Um, we, as a church, must give parents every opportunity uh, to raise their children in faith. Parents, let me just say parents and grandparents. It is our job to partner with you and to give you every resource so that you have the opportunity to share your faith with your children. Now, I understand pastorally, because I've talked with many of you about this, that it, is, uh, it becomes up to the child, when they become, particularly as they become a young adult and into their adulthood, whether or not they stay with it. But what, for all of us, what leaves people, what brings people coming back is not the rules, but the relationship. And so, um, it is, I want to say this, it's never, ever, 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 ever too late. Do not know what God is going to be doing in the life of your adult child who seems to have, today have no interest. Um, but we want, as a child, it is not our responsibility as the church to teach children about Jesus, it is, I know, I know how that sounds, but let me finish. It is our responsibility to partner with the parents and support what they are already getting at home. And so we have a parenting class and we're, we talk about those things and, um, with the parents and we give them resources and we send little bags home with VBS and, and, and uh, we, we're constantly trying things to help that conversation in the home because uh, we are, many people have said, we're always one generation away from extinction, extinction as, as a church. That's a little bit um, hyperbolic, I think, because God is always creating faith in us uh, but, and among us. But I do think that uh, it is both God's responsibility to uh, kindle faith within the hearts of his people and somehow also responsibility of the church family. I mean, every time we baptize a child, we say, we're going to help. We're going we're gonna to partner with these parents. We're going to do everything in our power to help this child grow in the faith and help these parents raise this child in the faith. And so when the call comes out for vacation Bible school or, or, um, or Sunday school or, or when you see a mom struggling with her kid uh, in the pews, like, go help. It's, it's important. You said you would. Um, I don't mean to push in a way that's painful. Uh, and I hope, it's, I hope that's not painful. Uh, I just want to say it's, it is the way it's set up in terms of the master plan of evangelism is through the family, and through the home. And it doesn't always work that way because we're broken and broken people are raising broken people. And uh, it just, you know, we do our best. But uh, what we want to do is not to expose them first to rules, i.e., you have to acolyte, and if you don't, you're grounded, but to expose them to the joyful relationship that we have with our own Lord. If we don't have that, then let's work on that. Let's work on that. So they have this pattern that gets set up. The people abandon the Lord. God gives them into the hand of their enemies. 
life gets real hard for the people, the people cry out to the Lord. God sends a deliverer, and it's usually some sort of rebel or freedom fighter, um, maverick kind of person. And then they have peace. The person they send is called a judge. And, um, and then they have peace for a while, and then the people wander away again. So that's, um, that's the pattern. And it's interesting because God never sends the person you'd expect. Never does God send the person you'd expect. Um, he raises up some very strange choices. And we see two leaders today in our readings that we would not have expected for God to raise up. Not unlike, I think, the 12 disciples uh, that we see he doesn't pick the religious elite to be his disciples, Jesus. He picks fishermen and tax collectors. It's, It's really strange. And yet, with those crazy men, he turns the world upside down. And we still see it today. Some of the people that we would expect would be great leaders, for whatever reason, aren't some of them are. But but the people that really ought to have no business leading the church are the ones that are. And I will say that firsthand. I have no business doing what I'm doing. I mean it. Like, you're laughing at me as if, oh, he's just saying that. I mean it. I can tell you some stories, right? And all kinds of just weirdness that I just have no business being up here. I thank God. But it, it's, I mean, sometimes I think that the reason that he called me to ordination was so I would go to church. You know, like I just, um, but the, uh, and sometimes I think, well, they're paying me. I better go. Um, you know, I, I love it, but it's only by his grace. And because of that, um, anyway, I was not headed on this trajectory. I think I've told you before, I have a very vivid memory when I was a little boy in church I guess I wasn't a little boy. I was like in my early teenage years. I was in church, and I remember looking up at the stained glass and thinking, man, I'm going to graduate from high school in not too long, and who is going to get me up and bring me to church? Because I, why would I go to church? I mean, that was just no interest. I was interested in being discipled by the movies I was watching. That was, that was, that, anyway. Um, so I think it actually gives us great hope that we see over and over again these characters uh, that are, are raised up for leadership. And again, it's, it's not that they find they have some great gift in this. They just kind of bumble their way and God does the rest. You know, that's, and that's kind of like church leadership, honestly, but don't tell anybody. So, um, we come to judge. This is the pattern. The people wander. They get oppressed. They cry out. God sends a judge. They overcome. They have peace. Then they wander again. So we find ourselves the first unlikely judge, um, and we see we've seen a couple already, but the author, the book of Judges, spends a lot of time on Deborah, two two full chapters. We've gotten at most a paragraph or two on Othniel and Ehud and some others, but um, but now we've got Deborah, and it is she's the only female judge that we see in the book of Judges. It would have been very unusual in that culture for a woman to be raised up as the leader of any country, uh, and, and, and certainly Israel as well. And there's no fanfare about it. There's, there's no description of her qualifications other than that she is a prophetess. 
And it mentions who her husband is, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, but that is the only time Lapidoth is ever mentioned. We don't ever hear about Lapidoth. He's not a player in this at all. So let me uh, just kind of, we just want to work through um, the narrative of Deborah before we get to Gideon, who also is a character. So, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army, Jabin's army, uh, was Sisera, who lived in a town that I can't pronounce. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, it doesn't seem to imply that they cried out in the first six months and God drug his feet. It kind of seems to imply that for 20 years they just suffered, and then they finally had enough, and they cried out. Not really sure. It's not real explicit about that, but that's kind of the way... Uh, it seems. Now Deborah, a prophetess, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. That's all it tells us. She's not a warrior. She's not a general. She's very nonchalant. Deborah, she's a prophetess. She's judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Raham and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And so that's just her memory. She's, she's a judge. She is, um, she is a prophetess who presides over small claims court, is essentially uh, what she does. Israel had been oppressed for 20 years by Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his general Sisera, uh, who had 900 uh, iron chariots. You can imagine that's probably seems pretty formidable if you've got you know brooms and, and maybe pitchforks on a battlefield um, and you have 900 heavy horsemen coming with iron chariots behind uh, I can't imagine the, the iron chariots were sort of the nuclear weapons of the day and so the power differential is um, great to say the least now Listen to what happens. We're not given any context. I'm not skipping over any verses. Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali, that's one of the tribes of Israel, and the people of Zebulun, another tribe, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with the chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So, Again, we don't know what prompted her. She was just doing her job in small claims court. And she, um, she must have heard from the Lord. doesn't say that the angel of the Lord appeared to her. Just really nonchalant, really strange. But she says to Barak, whoever Barak is, we don't know who he was, go get 10,000 troops 
And then Sisera hears about it. You can just imagine Sisera kind of going, these people, this is ridiculous. All right, mount up, boys. Get the 900 chariots. Now, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Gladiator. Did you see, did you see the movie Gladiator? It's really one of my favorites. Don't hold that against me if you think those movies are bad. But there's a scene where um, they come into the Roman Colosseum, and there's, I don't know, 30 or so, um, maybe 40 guys with shields and spears, and then there's, they bring in about 8 or 10 chariots, and it is not looking good for the guys with the shields and spears. And, of course, they win because, because of the great general, uh, Maximus. Um, but it is, um, it is not... Uh, it, it is unlikely. Nobody expected that. And so we have that here. We have 10,000 troops and 900 iron chariots. So it's sort of like that scene in Gladiator times like, I don't know, 100, I guess. And, um, and again, very nonchalant. Uh, 14 and 15, Be- uh, Deborah said to Barak, Up! This is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. It doesn't say, and Barak was a military genius, and they broke into three different groups, and they snuck attack from behind. They didn't say any of that. We do get some descriptions of battles like that in Scripture, but it's just, they took out 10,000, the Lord routed them. Doesn't say how. Just says they took down the the nine hundred chariots, and Sisera gives them the slip. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Um, it would have been a remarkable military victory. The only thing we say we're told the Lord routed Sisera. So Sisera runs out. Um, Barak's army is chasing him, but he gives him the slip. He ends up in this tent uh, with someone he thought he had a, a, an alliance with, uh, Heber, the, Heber, the Kenite. He thought he was his ally. Heber's wife, Jael, cares for him, brings him in. This, this general acts like she's going to hide him, and then just, you know, as if it was what you do every day, drives a tent stake through his temple <laughs> when he was sleeping. It's kind of disgusting it's kind of it's just this sort of amazing like wow that's a lot of detail um and and just you know cold-blooded and then and then everybody rejoices and deborah and barack sing this song that takes up all of chapter five which is not like the song of of it's not like the magnificat or the song of hannah which are you know the lord lifts up the lowly it just kind of tells the story and says, isn't J.L. great, or isn't God great for empowering J.L. to drive a tent stake through the head of this man? It's just kind of gruesome. Um, and then the last, the, the land had rest for 40 years. And that's the end of the story of Deborah. And it's the strangest, like, it's just amazing and strange. Um, it's just, I just think it's a, a, a remarkable that, that the author spends that much time. But I think he does because it was just so unusual that a woman was the judge. And she was a very effective judge. She motivated the guy who could motivate the people. And, um, and, he, and he went out. And they, they went out in obedience. But the Lord was the one who got the victory. And that's really what it was. And then um, the land has rest under her leadership. 
Any thoughts, comments, questions? It's kind of strange, right? You think, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, let's finish the story of these two, um, of these two, the next one, which is Gideon, and then see. So the pattern changed. The pe- Again, they had land for 40 years. The people did. Then, of course, chapter 6 opens with the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now, you remember that um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a priest of Midian. This was many, many, many years before this. But they get crossways there, and Midianites are actually connected to the people who uh, were in the land of Canaan, and so they get crossways. Midian's very powerful. Uh, they are, the hand of Midian is upon Israel for seven uh, years. And what happens with Midian is they actually drive the Israelites up into the hills, and they have to live in caves. They can't grow anything up there, so they have to grow things, their crops down in the plains, but the Midianites are down there, and they just devastate the crops. They take all the crops for themselves. Um, and they take all their livestock. And so they're basically starved up in these, uh, the Israelites are starved up in the hills. And they cry out to the Lord. So the pattern changes just a bit because um, the Lord expresses disappointment uh, through a prophet. Starting with verse 7 in chapter 6. When the people of, the Lord, people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet. Don't, we're not told who that prophet is. To the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. As if to say, what did you expect? I mean, we have this covenant. It's not just... It's not just from, for the museum. I mean, it is, it, is the, the, it is the agreement between your people and me. I mean, you're God, and you have just repeatedly left me. What did you expect? And still, God graciously um, sends the angel of the Lord, who goes to this man named Gideon, who is hiding from the Midianites, He's beating out wheat inside of a wine press. I don't know much about agriculture, but that sounds kind of weird, right? It sounds like you would not make good wine from that wine press if you just wheat chaff all in, the, in there. But he's just doing what he can do to feed his family. And the angel of the Lord greets him and says, Greetings, O mighty man of valor. Let's see, let's make sure I um, say it right. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon, this is so unusual because Gideon doesn't like fall down and worship this angel of the Lord. He's just had it. You know, I've quoted a friend of mine before many times, I think, that um, God's office is at the end of our rope. And that's where God meets Gideon. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? I mean, if that's not a contemporary question, I don't know what is. I mean, how many of us, just in the past week, but, but over the course of our life, look at tragedy and think, where in the world is God in all this? Or how do we, we think, well, I'm going to hold on, but I'm going to be quiet about it, because if anybody asks me about why, where is God in this, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
I don't know what I'm going to be able to say to them. So I'm just, so we don't know what to say. Where is God all this in the midst of tragedy? Now, um, we have seen many times, in fact, I wrote an article that some of you read uh, this week about tragedy. The Bible over and over again shows that God does not withhold tragedy and yet He is still working. I don't really know why that is, but we can look at the cross and we can see that um, uh, we can see that God did not even withhold tragedy from Himself. But He stepped right into uh, the midst of it. So Gideon says, why is this happening? There's no bowing down in worship. There's no drawing back in fear. It's just weariness. And the Lord doesn't answer him. He doesn't say, well, I'll tell you why it's happening, buddy. Actually, we just heard from the prophet why it's happening, right? You were disobedient as a people. But he doesn't bring shame to Gideon. He says, I will be with you. Gideon says, I am low and weak in status. I am... Of, I'm like the last man on the rung of the, la, the last rung. I mean, I, they, my, I'm from the half tribe of Manasseh, not a full tribe. My clan is the least of all the clans in Manasseh, and I am like the, you know, the runt of the family, uh, essentially is what, what he's saying. And the Lord says, go in might and defeat Midian. And again, we've seen this before. We've seen this with Moses. Moses says, I can't do this. And what does the Lord say? Oh, yes, you can. I've given you all these great gifts, right? No, he says, I will be with you. Over and over again, that's the answer. I will be with you. The Lord, the battle belongs to the Lord, just like he was with Barak right before. So Gideon goes and tears down in a sheriff hole, uh, builds an altar to the Lord. People are ticked about that because we're, we're having a hard enough time, and now we've messed up the, the gods. And... Um, and Joash, Gideon's father, actually has to step in and says, let the Baals contend for themselves. So even there, Gideon doesn't stand up for himself. But Gideon says, if I'm, I, if I'm to do this, Lord, I need you to show me a sign. And he puts out a fleece, which I guess is like a, you know, like a woolly sponge. And he, um, not like a, you know, Patagonia jacket, but a, but a woolly uh, sponge. And he, um, he says, let there be dew on the fleece, but not on the ground. And the next morning, there's dew on the fleece, but not on the ground. And then he says, don't be angry, but let's just try one more time. Let there be dew on the ground, but not on the fleece. And the next morning, there's dew on the fleece. I mean, dew on the ground, but not on the fleece. And Gideon says, okay. Let me ask you this. Is it okay for you to put out a fleece? I see some shaking heads and some nodding heads. Is it okay for you to say, Lord... If you want me to do this, show me a sign. It is if you're unsure whether it's the Spirit or yourself. It is if you're unsure, is what you say. You're shaking your head. What do you, you say? No. It's always going to end up with God doing exactly what He wants you to do. But you cannot see that at once, so you just say, okay, I'm here. Yeah, the only thing that changed was Gideon's assurance, right? It, it didn't change the outcome. This is what was going to happen no, anyway. It's already, already decided. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. You know, I, I just think it's probably better not to test the Lord. And if I'm creating a sign like that, I'm just, I, it's kind of, 
to say nothing of it. I think God will show us the way. I think it's better to be patient and watch which doors close and which ones open than it is to say, all right, show me a sign. I'm going to actually ask you to do something miraculous uh, outside my back door. But if you ask him, you better duck. <laughs> if you ask him, you better duck. Uh, well, that's a good point. Um, I, I just personally, I, I don't mind. I, I mean, I love the story. Um, I think I, I wouldn't say, okay, Lord, if you want me to do this, then make it snow tomorrow. I mean, you're living in North Florida. Like, you know, like that's not, that's, you know, that's not going to happen. I think I would say, you know, show me the way. Let's, you know, let me, give me the wisdom to understand things as they unfold. Let someone, let me have this conversation. Let this go this way. But I, I, I don't know. I would, I would put an if then before the Lord. Place where God really says we're allowed to test him, and that's in the area of giving. In Malachi, he said, Test me. Test me, yeah, in giving. He never says, Test me in other things. That's true. Sometimes you can, I know somebody who did that through a police one time. It was a friend of a friend who said, God's going to tell me who to marry, so I'm going to marry the man that comes and sits in this, you know, put this person in the seat that I'm supposed to marry at church. How'd it go? He came in and sat there, she married him. And it ended up being horrible. She was terribly abused. Mm. You know, and that always impressed on me as a new Christian, you know, to be cautious, you know, in those police things. Because I have other friends that threw out police all the time, but I never could get it. I, it makes me real nervous. Me too. These, these people saying, I'm going to, like, I don't know if you heard Ellen say that a friend said, I'm going to marry the next man who sits down next to me. And it was a terrible, and they, she, she did. She married him, and it was a terrible marriage. And it just makes me real nervous. I would be very, 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 very careful about that. Um, don't put out a fleece by yourself. Like, get your small group, your Bible study, your priest, get the community around you to pray with you about this. confirmation. Yes. Right. I mean, I didn't say, Lord, if you want me to be a priest, you know, make it snow or make it, you know, let their... I, I didn't. I didn't do that. But there was a whole, whole. I mean, years of testing the the call. You know. So, all right. So um, the Lord dwindles the army of Gideon. Gideon goes out and gets thirty two thousand people, and God says, "Access too many. You're going to get credit for the battle." And um, and I and and this is not yours. So I want you to just tell everybody who's afraid that they can go home. And like, of the thirty two thousand, twenty two thousand leave. Right. So now we're down to 10,000. God says, no, 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 that's too many. So go down and get, tell the guys to go get a drink of water. All the ones who drink it like normal people, send them home. All the ones who lean down and lap it up like a dog, those are my guys. <laughs> so God takes the lappers, 300. 300 lappers whose mamas didn't teach them how to drink water uh, out of the river with any manners. And, um, and Gideon... And then they take, this is just the funniest thing. So they surround the Midianite army whose camels could not be numbered. You know, like it's just, it was, it was, there's a giant army that's surrounded with 300 people. They have trumpets and glass jars. And they blow the trumpets and they smash their pots. And the Midianites are thrown into confusion. They start killing each other and they run off. Who does the battle belong to? The battle belongs to the Lord. It is just the craziest thing. And, and what I take away from this is you absolutely never know how God is going to do His work. You just never know how God is going to see His purposes through. 
the land had rest for another 40 years. And then Gideon died, and what happened? The people of Israel turned aside and whored after the Baals. That's a direct quote. I'm not being foul mouth. Why such fickleness? Why such fickleness? Didn't they learn their lesson? I heard somebody say it. I don't. Do we? Do we, do we learn our lesson? That's, a, that's the question, isn't it? I think I do. We grow in our understanding. So we can learn over and over. But we cannot do it ourselves. This, in fact, this fickleness, this is human nature. That we are going to put our faith always in what is in front of us because we are just instinctively caring for ourselves. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. To reconcile us to God because we could not reconcile ourselves. So, the book of Judges is a really fascinating, very contemporary, very uh, relevant book. I encourage you to read the whole thing. And we're going to talk about one of the most bizarre characters in all of Scripture next week, Samson. He is a nut. A total nut job. Uh, he, and I just think he's crazy. So read up on Samson. The guy, I'll talk about it next week. It is just, it's hilarious. I actually couldn't get through the movie, but, um, so I'll talk about that for about 20 minutes. If I can, I, I don't talk about anything for 20 minutes, but if I, I, I'll try that and then Sarah will um, talk about Ruth. So. God bless you. There's so much to say about this, but we've got to go to church. Turn in your Christmas child boxes. Christmas box, children. Yeah. Sir.